Hello and welcome to Concert Pipeline. That's Jen Shippen. And that is Steve Jones. And today on the program, we have a great artist named Robert Berry. Uh, he's of a band uh, named Three that was around back in uh, the 80s. We'll talk about that in uh, a little bit, but excited to have him on the program. Jens, you, in our last episode last week, you talked about an international trip that you had where you visited almost every country in Europe. Is that accurate? No. No. That would have been nice, but um, we did uh, see... My wife and I took a trip uh, to the Baltic, so um, Baltic Sea, and we got to see most of the countries that circle around the Baltic Sea. Um, and I have a, a kind of a side story to, to tell. What do you got? And I don't think I've I don't think I've shared this with you yet because I am deeply 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 embarrassed that this happened to me. I love embarrassing stories. Yeah, anyway. this is de- definitely embarrassing and incriminating, and um, it's one of those "you're a fucking idiot," you know, stories. I look forward to hearing it. I mean, I've ha- I have a couple of years, you know, classify into that category. <laughs> right. one, or, one or two. So this, <laughs> this will round out the trifecta. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, uh, okay. So there was a question before the trip began um, of, you know, what should you bring on the trip and what shouldn't you bring? You know, what, what are you going to bring and use and what are you going to bring and probably, you know, not use that, that type of thing. That's why would you bring something that you're not going to use Jens? Well, because you know, you want options in case you, you're like, I'm not going to use this, but I'm going to bring it. Yeah. 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 Like for example, um, you know, uh, Dayquil, you know, if, if you start, if you're traveling and all of a sudden you get a cold or a flu, it's really nice to have drugs on you right away without having to go find what the drugstore is called and then figure out where the drugstore is and then talk to somebody who works at the drugstore, you know, all in a different language. Okay. I think I get where you're going. You know what I'm saying? So it's nice to have a small pharmacy with you when you travel. Uh, That's one thing. The other thing is... uh, the little things, like, you know, like binoculars. I, I, I don't know how many times I've ever used binoculars. For when you're in your hotel and you need to peep on someone else, right? Yeah, <laughs> right. I know. I got you. I've been there. Yes, carry on. <laughs> if you're like, if you're like somebody who loves to take photos and watch birds early in the morning. You yes, know, birds. Then, then birds. yeah. In England, you know what they call the... Uh, Birding. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's what I was going for. See, I usually always wait for people to finish their questions, but I knew exactly what you were talking about. I've never been birding. Um, They call the vagina in England a bird, I think, by the way. Do they? Yes. Just in case you're wondering. So you you go watch your birds with your binoculars. Yep. What about like the flip a bird? Like you're going to flip a bird. I I don't think that's from England. I don't know. You're not flipping a vagina? I don't think you are. Because if you are, that has a whole new meaning for me. It does. That changes everything. Yeah. I'm going to start like flipping vaginos all the time. Okay. All right. Um, now I don't know what I was talking about. You're like binoculars. Yes. Yeah. So let's say you're going someplace and uh, and uh, you're there and you're like, oh, why did I not bring my binoculars? I so wish I could see that happening right now. Right? Yeah. Probably doesn't happen all the time. But if you had binoculars... My God, your experience would be so much better. So what level are your binoculars, by the way? Are they the the little compact ones that just fit nicely in your backpack? Or are they like you have the legit binoculars? Both, like the teeny tiny ones and and then like the really big heavy ones. So you wanted to bring both? Well, no, I actually didn't bring either. 
because my my answer to that question is usually no, I'm not going to bring any binoculars, and there's no reason why I should right. bring them. So I've never brought my binoculars anywhere. But my camera, I have um, I have a 35 millimeter uh, camera that's like a thousand bucks, and I've only taken it uh, on vacation maybe twice ever. Okay, um, glad you. It's going to good use. Yeah, exactly. So I'm not quite sure. You know, wait, how much did you say this is? It was like a package deal at Costco, thousand bucks. So you have a thousand dollar camera that you've never taken on vacation, even though you've you world travel on the regular. Yeah. And you never thought twice. I took it on vacation twice. But you've never thought. I mean, when you were like, you know, sleeping with polar bears in Alaska, and you know, and all the other world travels you've done, you've never thought "Mm, it might be a good idea to bring the camera that can take some pretty fucking good pictures. Yeah, exactly. Okay, that's what I'm talking about. So you have to go through that list and decide what you're going to bring, what you're not going to bring. So I kind of figured out. Okay, I I am going to bring the camera. Because there'll be situations here where I'm going to need a kick-ass telephoto lens. Right. Right. For looking through uh, to other birds in birds. Different, different hotel rooms. Right. <laughs> I'm thinking more like <laughs> castles and stuff. Oh, okay. But uh, sure. Um, I think I did get a seagull in there by accident. Uh, now... My wife, on the other hand, was saying, no, 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 don't bring that. It's just dead weight, and you're going to not take any pictures anyway. Um, So I probably should have listened to her um, (laughs) and just not brought it. But last time I brought it, I think more than half of the photos that we took came from that camera, and they were great photos. Um, Anyway, so I decided to bring the camera, right? Uh, we hop on the plane, we're on the plane, we land in Europe, um, and then we have to transfer to another plane, and then we're on that plane, and we go to another airport, right? And then we have to transfer to the train station to take the train to this little town where my relatives live. So we get off the train... And the train leaves, and I and I and I look to my wife, and I say, "Did you get the camera from out from under the no chair that no. we were sitting on? No, the thousand dollar camera that you never used. No way. You're okay. Don't Fucking f- gone. The no. train's gone. Camera's gone. And we're like, no, we hadn't even had time to take a single picture on it. And I had wiped the memory card, so there was nothing on there. Um, and I was just ready to go and, you know, stoked to take like a thousand pictures and there it goes. Train's gone, camera's gone. And we just look at each other. That did not just happen. And of course we get into an argument and we talk all about, you know, how she told me how I should have never bought the camera to begin with. So, yeah. And, and it elevated the, you know, the only pictures on the memory card were the, the porn pictures you had for, you know, Uh, I know you guys, you know, from uh, the bedroom. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. You know, we captured all that high definition video and yeah. Well, 4K video, yeah. I know, I should have erased that. No, luckily, um, luckily there wasn't anything incriminating on it. So I realized, you know, pretty quickly, 
that sucks. We're never going to see the camera again. Ever. There's no way for you to track down the train or like call them and be like, I mean, I, I ran through this on a similar, you know, th- you know, issue years ago where I was on BART and I fell asleep. I don't know how you sleep on BART because it's, but I mean, the air that comes out of the, yeah. the, the window thing is kind of, you know, it, it can kind of make you sleepy. And so, and then I was like, oh my God, I'm at my exit. Right. And I, so I hopped off, I got off the train and then I was like, oh shit, my backpack is on there. And there were some cash in there you know not a ton but there right. was some cash right. there was a signed goldfinger cd uh, so, you know a, a, a you know a wooden box my dad had made me that he gave me you uh-huh. know that, like a couple of things you know that are kind of irreplaceable like that you right. know but just like i just I was like snapped out of it and, and i then yep there's no way to get it so yeah, I, I yeah. tried but done. yeah so with this particular scenario i mean the good thing was or the good thing that i kept on telling myself over and over and over again you know if this has to happen. You know, if you have a destiny that is set for you and you are going to forget your camera yeah. at some point during your three-week vacation, at least it was at the beginning. It's good that it's yeah. the very beginning because you're not losing anything personal. Sure, you've lost a thousand bucks, but you're not losing any like something. You're not losing anything that's irreplaceable. You're not losing you know hundreds of photographs that. Yeah, you're never gonna you know see again. And you got your phone, and you can still take great pictures with your phone, just not. Thousand dollar camera. You just can't zoom in like crazy yeah, yeah, and take exactly. nice, uh, you know, optical photos. But so I'm like, fuck. And we were, I mean, we were so tired. And that's exactly why I had forgotten the camera under the seat because I was literally, I could hardly even yeah. see straight anymore after so many hours of, of, of traveling. You know, you just can't think straight any longer. So I'm like, I can't believe I just did that. And I never do that. I never, you know, forget stuff like that. So, um, so then, uh, you know, uh, I'm with my family and we're just regurgitating this entire story. Um, and you know, they were like really empathetic and super friendly and understanding, you know, my cousin says, Oh, you know, we'll call lost and found. So she did. But it's some special train. It's not like the, it's not like the German, uh, you know, the the German Federal Republic train or whatever. It's some. It's like a magic train that they can never trace again. <laughs> it's like yeah, it's some like student train, and they have their. Whole, it's a whole different. Doesn't even a, run on tracks. It's right. Amazing. It, yeah. Exactly. It's just a bus. <laughs> it says school. No way to trace. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. That train doesn't exist, sure. Right. So Your it's not like. Can... So it's not like Amtrak. You know, it's not like it's it's not like Amtrak. It's like a. Um, I don't know anything about Amtrak, but if Amtrak was like a, 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 a train run by the government, <laughs> then okay. then and you call the government and you say, "Hey, I f- you know lost my camera on the train because I'm a dumbass. Here's the, you know, here's my itinerary. Where can I go to Lost and Found?" You said, you said uh, itinerary. 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 Yes. So. Um, <laughs> And they're like, oh, no, that's not us. you got to call this <laughs> other company because it's a private train and they, you know, lease our lines or rails or whatever. So we, you know, finally figure out who to actually call. And they're lost and found. It's in the middle of fucking nowhere. Okay. And it's in the middle of nowhere, Germany. Like, the place where you never want to go yeah. is where this company has their headquarters and where the lost and found is. It's not at the train station. No, why would it be? It's hours and hours and hours away. You have to hop in a car and go, right? 
so um so we're like, did, oh, did you, know you guys what? do it or so we yeah so we put in a, a description of what it was that we lost and we figured we would never ever hear back from them and um I was only with my family for like two, no, uh, for three days, you know, and then, and then the rest of the vacation was after that. And I really needed the camera for the, like the middle part of the leg. And I knew I wasn't going to have it for that. So anyway, um, so that's that thousand bucks. Bye bye. You know, hard lesson learned. Um, and then I had mentioned that part of my trip was this cruise in a cruise ship. You're going around the Baltic, um, and you're looking at all these different, uh, cities in these uh, in these different countries. So the first, the very first stop was uh, in this seaside town, um, not too far away from Berlin. I would say probably about two hours from from Berlin. So the cruise ship doesn't go all the way to Berlin. I don't think it fits. Okay. So it it stops at this little beach town, and people that are interested in making an excursion to Berlin just hop on the train to do so. But I had arranged to visit uh, some more of my family that I didn't have the chance to see a few days earlier because they live in a different part of Germany. So they met us there and we just had an awesome, awesome time uh, just hanging out on the beach, having tons of fun. And they had, um, we had brought each other some presents. <laughs> uh-huh. So I gave them like, oh my God, Germans are so funny. So, uh, so the part of my family that I had met here had visited me uh, in California a few years ago and they, loved these microfiber towels that I had in the kitchen. Okay. You know what I'm talking about? I'm wondering how this gets back to the camera, but I'm... Uh, yeah, this, this, this is going to make a full circle. Okay. This is going to make a full circle. And I, I love these towels. I, I do realize I have been drinking, but I will get uh-huh. to the end of the story. So you know these microfiber <laughs> towels? We're running out of time on the podcast. It's almost over. <laughs> <laughs> going to have to make it a two-parter. Right. Anyway, microfiber, microfiber towels. towels sure. They're, they're, it's a towel with these... It, it's got this technology in it. Yeah, it's got this microfiber technology in it that picks up everything. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, you know, if you have a dusty place, these towels are heaven. And my cousin just fell in love with these things and said, oh, would you buy like a whole pack and send it to us? And I said, sure. So I went to Costco and I bought like a massive, huge pack of microfiber towels and proceeded as quickly as possible to completely forget about the experience. So these towels were in my garage for three years okay. until I finally decided to go back to Germany. So I brought them with me. You took me. them with you. You, took, you, you carried I, this big pack of microfiber uh, yes. towels to take. And they, and they consumed about 25% of the space in my luggage. You know, Costco yeah. stuff is massive. Yes, right? of course. You're not packing light. Uh, they're like... But you're committed. 50 towels in this thing or something. It's ridiculous, she could, yes. She could give them to the neighborhood, you know. Anyway, so she was so excited that, uh, you know, she had these towels again. We were laughing about this experience. And then she gives me a pack. And um, I open it up, you know, wondering, you know, what on earth that, you know, she's giving me. And as I take the wrapping paper away, it's my fucking camera. What? And I'm staring at it in complete disbelief. Like, how is my camera in my lap right now? Right, yeah. So then they proceed to tell me the whole story about how my other cousin that I was talking about earlier, who, you know, helped me uh, figure out how to find out where the lost and found is, she was in communication after I left, you know, with that department. 
and then they it popped up somebody on the train no actually it was the it was the cleaning crew or the conductor did one last sweep after all the um you know people had left when the train reached its destination they cl- yeah. you know clear everybody out and they just do a sweep and they found it under the seat and they didn't and so, the conductor didn't say like ooh a new camera yeah guys. yeah 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 so the so the conductor was was uh was uh you know kind enough not to steal it <laughs> but nobody else had seen it i guess or if they had they just left it there yeah so I couldn't, I couldn't believe I was looking at this again. I thought it was like, no way. This and, is so not happening. And so I need you to take a step back. So when you lost the camera, how long ago did you lose the camera? It's, I mean, I think only four days had passed. Okay. Okay. Only four days had passed. So what my cousin did is she... Um, uh, so she'd been corresponding with Lost and Found, and they said, yep, you've, you know, you've positively ID'd uh, the camera that we have here. Um, would you like t- us to ship it to you? And she said, no, I'm going to drive, I'm going to pick it up, and then I'm going to go and, um, you know, somehow get it to its owner. So she she drove, so these two cousins I'm talking about are her sisters. So she drove to her sister's place okay. and was able to deliver the camera to her sister before she met up with me in this beachside town right outside of Berlin. Yeah. So this camera that I had forgotten underneath the seat of a train like a dumbass made it halfway across Germany in a car back into my hands. Wow. Without you even knowing. Without me even knowing. I mean, I had no idea. I figured this was going to be done, gone. And it was, I mean, it was a bizarre experience. I mean, really weird kind of vertigo like what is happening you know yeah. it's like you can't i'm sure people have had experiences like this but it's just you know it's real but you can't believe that it's real right yeah it's like, what it's pretty crazy it's so really weird did you take some great pictures with the camera on your trip i took about five pictures of that fucking camera. Wow. <laughs> and so my wife was right at the very beginning. I should have never brought the thing. Yes. But, but I've got to admit, the few photos that I took were amazing. And um, if I get right down to the bottom of it, Steve, I was so damn paranoid that I was going to lose that camera again uh-huh. that I was too afraid to you know, leave our hotels, hotel rooms with it. So it was just, you know, it was in the closet or it was in my suitcase or it was, you know, in the lock, in the, in the lock thing. Yeah. You know, when Kevin hotels have these little safes, you know, I was like so paranoid. (laughs) So anyway, so one thing I was really excited about Steve was that, um, have you ever heard these stories where, you know, if you lose something like a camera or a cell phone and you're lucky enough to get it back, Sometimes the person that found it will take pictures. Yeah, and yeah. Leave them you, for want, you. you wanted to see some new pictures. It's like a, like at a wedding when you have put disposable cam right. uh, disposable cameras on the table, right? You want to see what shows up at the. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I said in the very beginning of the story that I didn't I didn't take any pictures with this. No, thing. but it there were magically a hundred pictures on them. So here I am thinking, oh my god, I was a little bit scared to turn it on because uh-huh. I was thinking if this guy, I'm just making assumptions. I don't yes. know if the conductor is male, but here I am. I have this you know, feeling that the, the, the conductor, some sort of like 
guy who likes to take guy who likes to take naked selfies or something in the bathroom. So here I am just preparing myself for, oh my God, you know, I'm going to be, I'm going to see things that I'm never going to be able to unsee. But, um, but I must say, Steve, it was a little bit sad when it said, you know, no image or whatever my camera says. You you wanted to take it back to the conductor. You wanted to find the conductor. Yeah. I was like, take a picture of something. Come on. (laughs) And have him take some pictures. Yeah. Like just take a picture and write on it, you know, just mark it up, say you're welcome. I don't know. Something funny. There you go. Anyway, whatever. You got your camera. I got my camera back, so I'm happy. All right. Good story, Enzo. Yeah. That was like, um, but I'm, I'm afraid, Steve. I mean, you know me. Right. Um, that that might be the norm someday. That this story is it happens again. The first time it's ever happened to me in my life, but I have a feeling like this is going to start happening on a regular basis. I sure hope not, but uh, it will yeah. be great content for the pod if it does. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes. Anyway, I'm so happy I have that camera. Well, uh, let's move on to our guest now, Jens, uh, and that is, like I said, Robert Berry. He was in the band Three that was around in uh, in the eighties and. Um, and so the story goes uh, that Robert Berry got together with uh, Keith Emerson and with uh, Keith, Keith Emerson. So Robert got with Keith Emerson and uh, Carl Palm, Palmer. Uh, and uh, and so they had this, this band three, right? And so now, like 30 plus years later, um, after the, uh, the band disbanded in uh, 1987, uh, uh, Robert got back together with Keith, and um, and well, they they were talking, and uh, and a lot of this was through email, and you know, as you do with music now, you don't have to be in the same place necessarily, but and and on the phone, and they were shopping ideas and working together back in tw- you know two years ago in 2016, and um, and uh, and. And they were planning out this new album because uh, Keith Emerson, uh, w- you know, listened to this live album that was being released of their stuff that, you know, was, you know, I mean, of, of a show from years ago. He went, you know, this it was being released and he's like, you know, he called uh, Robert Berry up and is like, listen to this, man. It was good. You know, we were good. And so they're talking about doing a new thing. And then during this process, Keith Emerson, you know, committed suicide. Dang. Um and, you know, and so, um, Robert Berry and, you know, had just kind of shelved the project and we'll get into that in the interview, of course, you know, um, but this, that's kind of the story of 3.2, which is the project that he, uh, that Robert Berry went in and made this album using a lot of the ideas that they had, you know, uh, worked through together before they actually got the chance to record, mm. uh, you know, together. So, right. um, so on that note, um, I want to play a song from the album, um, which we don't play a lot of album songs. We do a lot of live, you know, material, but, um, that, you know, this is an interview I did that wasn't, you know, uh, at a concert or anything. So I want to play a song off the album that, um, that, uh, is a song that Robert wrote for Keith, uh, and it's called Our Bond. And so we're going to play that and then get into the interview with uh, Robert Berry. Here it is.
No talking, no defense, it's here The words become too much to bear The burdens as we march Through the trenches of this world It all changed here today In a lonely room surrounded by A million reasons to stand tall But the last and final fall Is one no man can share All alone with his fears And I hold the love of who you are The passion your hands brought to my ears Music's blood became our bond A good man that we honor here It all changed here today Llegaste a un lugar que pocos llegan Con el poder de montañas en tus manos Una brillante estrella sobre la tierra It all changes here today En este lugar de descanso eterno In an instant it was clear you were gone Across the world of sound Like truth to hold on to In disbelief we hold for peace In everything we held dear In that place no man can share Solo con sus temores I hold the love of who you are The passion your hands brought to my ears A music's blood a good man that we honor Robert Berry calling. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you doing, Robert? 
Not bad. You're up in Napa? I am. I am. Are you in the Bay Area, too? Yeah, I'm actually in Campbell, a little city here in San Jose, you know. I'm close, not too far. Yeah. I could have driven up in an hour and a half. So. I know, right? Not too, not too far, but uh, good to be talking to you. <laughs> how, yeah, how have you been? Well, it's been, I've been busy as can be. I, I got to tell you, it's kind of amazing to me what has gone on with the acceptance and the comments on the album, where I've done more interviews and got more reviews and nice things said. I mean, and then in my whole life, I mean, music, it's really, it's incredible. And that's why I get to talk to guys like you too, you know, or else you wouldn't even care. <laughs> no, I do. It's uh, the album is really awesome. I, I really dig it. And uh, to, I mean, to be, to be honest, I didn't, you know, I didn't know three. I mean, I was four years old when it came out. So to, to, to kind of, oh, and you didn't buy one? I know. Come on, it's four, you have money. I know, right? <laughs> my, my parents The, the grandparents, remember the grandparents give you 20 bucks every birthday and stuff. Your parents took that away. Oh, you should have had it on your own and bought it. <laughs> your, your grandparents gave you twenty bucks. Mine, mine gave me like these pencils with, with my name on it. So you know, I, I don't. Well, think... yeah, I got fifty cents or a dollar actually. But you know, these <laughs> days, my kids, they're there. They're gonna get twenty bucks from their grandparents. You know. <laughs> oh, good. That's the way to do it. Yeah. So, so yeah. You. How long have you lived in the Bay Area? All my life. You've been here forever. You know, right? I, my, my yeah. You know, there's a place here called Santana Row, which is. A new development where it's, I mean, the Shark, you know, that's, uh, our hockey team lives there. There's all these high-end stores. It's a whole community right in the heart of town. My grandmother's farm with apricots and stuff uh, was right next to that, and my dad's music store was right next to that. When, of course, Santana Road wasn't there then. It was called Town and Country. But uh, right in the heart of San Jose now is where my grandmother's ranch was, and uh my dad had a band. My mom was a singer, and they traveled around. But they've been here. My grandfather was a San Jose police officer, so I'm kind of a San Jose guy. Yeah, and so that was one of the things I was going to ask you about was about your musical influences when you were a kid. I mean, it sounds like both of your parents were were influences uh, on you. And I know you first p picked up the the keyboard around age twelve, but like, tell me about that. Actually, I started at age six. I had. I started piano lessons at age six. My dad had a music store, as I said, and he had this mean old German, uh, Carolyn Bowl was her name, piano teacher, and she thought that the boss of the store, the owner's son, should be her best student, so she was really hard on me, and I had to play all her music teachers where all they get together at the college here and do the recitals. I had to play all those, and... Uh, you know, she didn't hit my fingers with a ruler, but she was that kind of <laughs> kind of teacher. She was tough. Yeah. And in fact, I met her son uh, years later. Uh, he actually bought a house close to my home, and I said, "Oh, you're Mrs. Bull's son." And she was a great piano teacher. He said, "Well, she might have been a great piano teacher, but she was a really tough mother." And I didn't want to tell him she's a really tough piano teacher too. But I guess she was tough all around. Anyway, it. It benefited me in a big way later on. I hated piano lessons. I hated practicing. I didn't especially like performing in front of all these music teachers and their top students. But later in life, you know, those lessons you learn when you're young, whatever it is, uh, it could be, you know, fixing your, your mini bike or your go-kart, and later on you're, you're a mechanic, you know, for something. It, they lead you somewhere. So mine led me to staying in music. Yeah. So it was your parents' decision to put to get you into piano. Then it was. It wasn't. You. You didn't want anything to do with it. I didn't want anything to do with it. I, mean, I loved going down to my dad's piano store when I was little and running through the pianos and organs and 
and he actually got box equipment at one point, uh, which is what the Beatles used, the amplifiers, and a lot of the guys are still using box, country bands, Brian Main, Queen, those kind of guys. And so all the famous guys from San Jose, back in the late 60s, there were some bands. I was this little guy watching these guys come in and marvel over the box Super Beetle amplifiers and stuff. And I know in some way that affected me, where it seemed exciting. And then, well, gee, this um, music thing actually looks like a pretty good deal. These guys are really happy, and they're having fun. They're playing. They love the amps, the guitars, everything. It ha- I don't, you know, I didn't think about it back then, but it must have affected me in some way that my dad was providing music to all oh, those bands. Their their name is the Count Five. Had a song called uh, "Psychotic Reaction." It's been used in a lot of movies and stuff. And the Syndicate of Sound was from here. They had a song called Hey Little Girl. They were all top ten hits for these local bands. So when they came in, these guys were, were big. And my dad was uh, the guy providing them the guitars and amps. You know, it, it, like I said, I don't know how it affected me, but I know that it did because everything about music I love. It, um, I used to build some speaker cabinets. I have a recording studio, as you might know. Um, I write a lot of songs. I'm playing all the time. I produce people every day. And uh, I blame that on my parents. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not a bad thing to take away from them, right? I mean, it's it may not be what, have been what you wanted as a kid, but I bet you it made you stronger, you know, as an adult, right? It gave me that foundation, uh, which I think is good in any career. You have a foundation way beyond what your your job description really is. It lets you think out of the box. It it gives you, I call it the tool chest. You know, my tool chest has a lot of different tools from classical music from uh, jazz. I had two years of jazz piano after those eight years of classical. I had majored in music in college where I had to learn every instrument, at least enough to pass the test on it. You know, uh, trombone, tuba, violin, cello, uh, drums, which I already played, of course. But I mean, all these things get into my tool chest and let me draw from it. And of course, funny enough, playing with Keith Emerson and Carl Palmer, two of the most incredible, respected musicians in the world, I kind of needed that background on that foundation to be able to keep up you know. yeah so so how, tell me about how you uh, got hooked up with with um keith and, and carl you know it was interesting uh, i have a recording studio here in campbell where i live and back in 1986 i got a phone call on my studio phone and a guy in a high voice said it's uh, carl palmer there's robert barry there and i said I figured it was a friend of mine making a joke, right? Right. I mean, why would Paul Palmer be calling me? I'm, I did have a local band that did pretty well. We had a little record contract, toured around, but it was a local band. And I'm going, yeah, yeah, that's me. What can I do for you? Kind of smart ass, you know, a little tongue-in-cheek. Because, well, I've been here at Geffen Records talking to John Kalodner, and right there I knew because John Kalodner was a huge, well-known A&R guy at Geffen Records, and was sort of grooming me for a solo career. Um, I wasn't signed to Geffen yet, but he was doing everything he could to uh, sort of get me get me going. And I went, oh, wow, this is really Carl Palmer. I said, yeah, Carl, it's great to have you call here. I'm surprised. What could I do for you? Right. He said, well, we either need to replace John Wetton in the band Asia, which I like your voice and your writing, or I want to start a new band. Either way, I would like to do something with a guy that has an American voice, and uh, a little more of a rock style. I went, whoa, I'm in, whatever it is. <laughs> Tell me where to go. Um, he said, I'll have my manager get a hold of you. 
he's going to be in town at GTR, Steve Howe from Yes's band. So I met Brian Lane, the manager, at a GTR concert where Steve Howe, one of my guitar heroes, and Steve Hackett from Genesis, they were playing with this new band, GTR. And uh, I met Brian, I met Steve, and I went home, and Carl and I tried over six months or so with different guys to start a band, and it didn't work out. And one day when I'd, I'd flown to England, and, uh, you know, we tried it with a guy named Don Airy, who was with uh, Ozzy Osbourne and a bunch of bands. And it just, it, it didn't click musically. He was a great guy. And as I'm heading home, Brian says that uh, Steve Howe would like to have a meeting with you about joining GTR. I said, you're kidding me. Okay. Yeah. I went to Steve's. We started writing together. Got a second GTR album together. And unfortunately, the singer of GTR didn't want me singing and made my life miserable. And yeah, not really miserable. I shouldn't say it that way. But at the time, you know, here I am. I'm a nobody. I'm working with my, one of my heroes, Steve Howe. And this guy doesn't want me to sing harmonies on the mic. He doesn't want anything. He's upset that I'm writing all the songs with Steve. So I decided that it, it wasn't right for me. I didn't want to live my life like that, that there was something better out there. I was going to find it. And I decided to come home. And Brian Lane calls me and says, Keith Emerson wants to have lunch with you. I said, what? Said, yeah, he, he's heard the songs. You want to meet him? I said, of course, yeah. So the day before I'm heading back to California, I have lunch with Steve, with Keith Emerson, and we talk about starting this new band with Carl. And it was fantastic lunch, two-hour lunch. We talked about everything musically. We got along great. Um, we had similar backgrounds, similar family experiences, except for, the course, he had been playing 20, 25,000-seat arenas with Emerson, Lincoln Palmer for the last eight years or so and was hugely famous, and I was the new guy in the block. And uh, that's where it started. Yeah, and uh, and so tell me about the experience of kind of uh, of working on the power of th- uh, to the power of three. Like, uh, how did that come together? What was uh, what was the relationship like in building that? You know, the, I think the most interesting part for me of that was when Carl Keith and myself got to Keith's house, and he had a bar, and there was a studio there with some recording equipment and all his keyboards practice, and we started writing. That as the new guy, Carl and Keith always said, "We want you to be you. Don't think you have to be Greg Lake from Arsenal Lake and Palmer. We don't want you. We want you to be you. We want something fresh and new. And together, we're going to make that happen." That was huge respect and sort of validation from two of the greatest musicians ever in rock and roll. And that empowered me in a way that it's hard for me to even say. Just I was comfortable. I was confident. I gave my third of that three-piece band, uh, like, willingly and without any criticism. If any of us didn't like something, even if Keith came up with something, we, ah, you know, I don't know. He, okay, what do you want to do? We got along famously, and there was no competition. It was only to try to get this music and this band together. So we rehearsed in Keith's barn, and we went to a small studio in a place called, it was Easy Hire Rehearsal Studios, and they had a studio there. Like It was kind of like my studio here in Soundcheck. And we recorded a couple songs, and Brian Lane had us do a video to a song called Eight Miles High that we had done. And he sent it off to Geffen, and Geffen immediately signed us. And part of um, why 3 didn't continue on is because it all happened so fast that Geffen signed us right away. We got back in the studio, 
wrote a couple more songs, and we had some of my songs that Geffen had been developing, and we just put them all on an album and put that album out. And in retrospect, we probably should have spent another six months making a more cohesive kind of album and something that represented maybe the three of us working together a little bit more instead of bringing in well, a couple of my more rock songs and one from another girl uh, that was writing with Keith at one time, Sue Schifrin, who wrote a great song, but it was very poppy. You know, it wasn't really right for the band. Yeah. And uh, once we went out on tour, people loved the tour, but we got a lot of criticism from the ELP fans on the material. And uh, as successful as it was, we had a number nine, you know, top ten hit with a song called Talking About. And do you, and, uh, do, you, do, you do you remember? Ahead. Sorry, I was just sorry to cut in, but I was, I'm just curious. You know, do you remember where you were the first time you heard the, you know talking about on the radio? Like you heard your music on the radio? Yeah, I, you know, it was funny that they called us on the phone, and I, I believe it was one of the hotels. I'm not even 1988. Do they have cell phones then? I mean, they had great big old cell phones, but it wasn't like commonplace, you know, like it yeah. is now. And they called us, and our road manager came in and said, the song's hitting the charts, the Billboard charts. Uh, radio started to pick up on it. Oh, okay. You know, I mean, then we're driving. Sometimes we flew. Sometimes we drove. We had a tour bus. So on the bus, and there somewhere in Texas, I heard it for the first time. And it was really something. It, I mean, this, I wrote the song talking about, and then Keith got, grabbed a hold of it and made it this grand, this powerful piece. I never thought it was a hit. I never thought it'd be on the radio. It was just something that I wrote from inside out. You know, it, it just came out. Yeah. And here it was. And when we went to radio stations after the next, they all wanted to have us on for interviews. They always said, your song sounds so good on our station. <laughs> and that's because they, they had this huge keyboard sound. And really, rock guitar music was coming in then. You know, it was Nirvana was starting to take over, New Aerosmith stuff. Um, some of the grunge bands, uh, they're really starting to take over the radio. Uh, Guns N' Roses was, was getting huge. So to have a keyboard-oriented track come on the radio with all that frequency response and depth and width and highs and everything, it really did sound good on the radio. It, it kind of seemed louder and bigger than Guns N' Roses when it came on. Yeah. But, of course, it was the grunge stuff and the heavy rock that was sort of taken over that time, you know. Yeah, and so so tell me, you're on top of the world with that, right? You know, you're hearing yourself on the radio. You're you're doing the you know this really big tour, and then like in '89, uh, you guys kind of disbanded. What what happened there, and uh, and you know t how did the things unravel? Yeah, let let me go back a little bit to the tour. Yeah, because we started the tour in Poughkeepsie, uh, East Coast, and there's a lot of ELP fans that came out, and. Uh, you know, this isn't a criticism of guys that don't have hair, but, you know, for ELP fans, progressive rock fans, there's a, they're smarter than your average bear. They're kind of a lot of bald head and glasses, as far as you can see, and like programmers and stuff. These guys are, are smart, and they really like complicated, good music. So we have a lot of those coming in from the ELP fans. They didn't like that we had two girls in the band, a few of them, I should say. Um, Keith started to get criticized by these ELP diehard fans saying, what are you doing have two girl background singers in the band? And, you know, what are you doing playing these rock songs? And um, that's the way it started, because we only had ELP kind of yes, all the progressive fans. As we came around the country, went through Canada, things got a little bit better because the record was being played in Canada, 
And we started to see a lot of females in the audience and like a mixed crowd, a younger crowd now, because the song was on the radio. And those people had no preconceived uh, idea of what Three was. That Three wasn't ELP minus Greg Lake. Three was a new band to them. And our receptions were really great then. We came around to California. You know, we're hearing the, the radio play our song by the time we got to Texas. And by the time, you know, we were in L.A. playing, I mean, the crowd was really mixed. And we were getting just rave responses from everybody. But a few diehard ELP fans thought they'd tell Keith what they thought about it. One of them in particular wrote a letter to him saying that he was embarrassed for him and just didn't didn't think it was honoring Keith's legacy playing in a band that had two scantily clad girls, he said, in it. Now, I don't know about you, but the girls were actually dressed really nice. It wasn't like Playboy bunnies or something. Yeah. You know, they had... Or shorter outfits on and stuff, but they were really great singers, great girls, added that sound that Keith wanted to the band that was on the record. I don't know what guys would say, I don't want to see two girls background singers in a band. I yeah, yeah. I just don't know any guy, you know? Um, it was really confusing to me because we were a really good band. We also had my good friend Paul Keller on guitar. So we were a 60s band at, at that time. You know, we had the three of us plus guitar and the two girl backgrounds and it was a great kind of band the energy was amazing but these guys really got to Keith and uh, they convinced him that he was doing the wrong thing so we got together in, in London the first of 89 I brought some new songs saying I think this is what we should be doing nothing more you know straight than talking about and more you know a few progressive things like um, Desi Levita was, which was a song that in Spanish and stuff that people really like. And that way we sort of go from the middle to the heavy part. We don't go to the lighter end of it. And I just knew I had it. You know, I, I knew what the people would accept and what they wanted and really what we love to do. But Keith was done with it. The criticism really, it hurt him. He was worried about his, his ELP legacy. And he just said, no, I don't want to do this anymore. So at that meeting, you know, my hopes and dreams are kind of dashed there. It, it uh, broke up my big break, my only top 10 song, and working with the most famous uh, two musicians that uh, I've ever known. You know, That was uh, a tough time, and all because of the criticism from a few fans, not from a general uh, audience. You know, they, they were willing to go with it because there was enough good songs on there that they knew it would develop in the right way, but it just... Keith was done. Yeah. And and so after that point, after the band broke up, did you guys maintain a relationship over the years? Did you, you know, have dinners together? You know, I mean, tell me tell me how that progressed. To, to yeah, where... you know, what, what's interesting, there was a few times that Keith was in town here. I had set him up with a synthesizer a programming guy. Voice Crystal was the name of the company and they would make his sounds. They programmed this new keyboard, the D50, that we were using. And he also talked to me and said, you know, I think I'm going to start the Keith Emerson band, and I'd like you to be in it. And I, I said, okay. And, you know, so we got together in my studio with a few guys, and we spent a week rehearsing that. And, you know, it, it's always been my feeling that there's something, like, real, honest, and moving forward in my life to accomplish, I don't want to really be in a tribute band. Uh, I don't want to 
do something that only honors the past. I want to move forward. Yeah. And it's been a blessing and a curse. Trust me. And I'll, I'll talk about the curse later because I'm the luckiest guy you never heard of, you know, because yeah, I have one top 10 hit, but I played a lot of famous bands you've never heard the second album from. But um, then Keith, there, you know, he came in and did a commercial for me with some music store here that wants to do something. Uh, I led him into Soundcheck, my recording studio, to work on an album where he had met another friend of mine, Kevin Gilbert, here in town. And uh, they worked together. I worked with him in Soundcheck. And then over the years, you know, we just sort of, we talk on the phone quite a bit, but just, you know, seeing at the Mam show in L.A. and whatever. You know, just just longtime friends that lived, you know, six hours apart, so it wasn't that easy to see each other all the time. But the friendship stayed strong. Uh, I will say though, I never brought up doing a second three album with him for 27 years. Uh, we did all he played on a Tempest album for me, uh, Celtic band I produced. He played actually a little something on an ELP tribute album that I produced, and some things for. Uh, a Jethro Tull tribute album we did for this label, Magna Carta. We were always doing something together, but I never brought up three because I knew in his mind that he thought that wasn't good for his career. Now, if I could fast forward 27 years, you know, Keith Yusey would call me at 6.30, 7, 7.30 at night. He'd be sitting in a glass of wine, listening to music. We'd talk, and he'd tell me some... Sometimes funny jokes, and usually not so funny, you know. <laughs> he had a corny sense of humor. He was a lovely guy, a happy guy, um, totally dedicated and defined by music. That was his whole life, you know. But he also had a lot of fun. Um, he called me, and he was so excited. He goes, Robert, Robert, yeah, Keith, what's up? He goes, I'm listening to the album. Well, a record company... 27 years later, after our tour, had decided to release a live album called Three Live in Boston. Live in Boston, yeah. And Keith, you know, it was a, it was basically a paycheck for him. We got an advance from the record company, and he said, yeah, I can use the money. Go ahead, put it out. He still didn't want to hear it. He didn't want to think about it. But, he, you know, that's just a paycheck. The money went in the bank, but then the CD showed up, and that's when he called me. He had sat down that night with a glass of white wine and put on the Three Live in Boston album, and he couldn't believe how good we were. Yeah. He never revisited it. He only took the criticism from the fans, and that formed his opinion about what we did. And he was so excited. He said, oh, my God. He goes, we were really a good band. And I'm like, this is like Carl Palmer calling me yeah. the first time at Soundtech. I'm like, Keith Emerson just called me and said that he thought we were a great band. He said, the fire, the energy is so alive and the jamming. That's something ELP couldn't do really. We jammed in uh, three and it changed every night. It was more open. And he was so excited. And I thought, you know, I've waited 27 years to ask him this. So in the middle of that excitement, I said, uh, Keith, what would you think about doing a follow-up with me? And he calmed down. Because I, I don't know if he realized how excited he was and how much he liked it. And also, he's going, wait a minute. He said, very calmly, maybe. And I thought, whoa, that's as close as I've ever thought I would get. Yeah, you're like, and I said, well, it. you know what? Let me call a record company, Frontiers in Italy, that has been asking me for years to do a, a follow up three album. 
so they've asked me so much that when I just said no, I can't call Keith if I didn't want to do it. They said, well, you do a solo album and you make it wherever you want it to be. And I put out an album called Dividing Line for them, uh, eight eight years earlier or something like that. Yeah. And um, they really wanted this three album, so I called them up and I said, I have an open door here. You know, there used to be a joke that when you in high school, if you go to a, a girl's uh, front door and she opens with a crack and you want to ask her out, you got to put your foot in there so she doesn't slam the door. You can still ask her, right? Yeah, so yeah. I got my foot in the door with Keith Emerson and I'm talking to Frontiers and they're saying, let's do it, let's do it. I said, well, here's the kind of money we want. We want complete artistic freedom and we want a year to finish it. No pressure at all. We get to do what we want. There you go. And they said, we want this album. Do it. So I called Keith back, and he said two things that, that, that really stick with me. First of all, he said, what company has that kind of money anymore? Nobody cares. And I said, Keith, nobody cares. I said, this company's been trying to get me to do this for 10 years. I, I told him you wouldn't do it. I wouldn't even call you. I've talked to Carl about it before, but I wouldn't call you about it. They want the three of them, they want Keith Emerson. They care, and they think the public cares. Yeah. And he's all, wow. And the next thing he said was, he goes, you should be my manager. <laughs> I thought, oh, God. <laughs> this is Keith Emerson. He can do a lot better than me for his manager. You know, I'm a musician. Right. Um, but we started joking and laughing about it and saying, wow, well, let's, okay, let's plan it out. So I said, let me call the company back. And said, Keith, here's how I like to work with record companies. I don't like to sign a contract until I get two songs done and they say, this is a genius or this is great, this is what we want. Because I don't want them telling us in hindsight, oh, this isn't what we thought it was gonna be, blah, 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 you know. Even though we gave you artistic control, we're not gonna put the, the push behind it if it's not this or it's not that. He said, okay, that, that sounds fair, that's no pressure on us then. I said, yeah, call the record company back, talk to Serafino, the president of, of Frontier's Records in Italy. I said, Serafino, Keith and I are going to agree to do this, but we're not going to sign a contract till we send you two songs. He said, okay, that's, that's great. Give me the two songs. And Keith and I started working by phone. And I'll tell you a couple things we had. I had a cassette tape that we had done in the rehearsal room in his barn. Yeah. It had a lot of stuff on it. And one complete song that didn't have lyrics and a melody that Keith had come up with that I didn't like back in 1987 when we were rehearsing because I thought it was kind of straight and I had enough straight songs in the album. We shouldn't do another straight kind of rock song. But now I listen to it, I go, oh my God, this is genius. This is so Emerson. We just put a couple of pieces in there. This is great. I'll come up with words. We had that. And then we had a bunch of digital files that Keith recorded, playing-wise. He had sent me that weren't complete songs but had great Keith Emerson writing and playing on them that I could use to sort of cut up and put the verses and choruses into the songs and use Keith's, you know, intros and solos and linking sections and all that. And which isn't different than the way the first album was written, although it was in reverse. In the first album, I had songs, Keith cut them up and put the linking sections, intros and all this stuff in them, the solos. So it started with the song. On this new album, it was starting with the linking and the section and then intros and all that. I put the song into it, which is much better for the continuity of the whole thing because then it all takes on the same kind of a momentum and the energy moving forward. But anyway, so we had that. 
the most incredible part of it for me and the part that I really miss the most and can never happen again is that Keith had this new Casio piano. The Casio used to be a cheap brand you buy in. We had something called Kmart here. Right. It'd be like a Target. Yeah. You know, Target, you'd get these little Casio keyboards, you push a button, ding, do, do, ding, do, do, ding, and it would play like, a, it was sort of a toy, but it was, you know, better than that. But Casio now is a legitimate synthesizer digital piano company with great instruments, and they gave Keith a real hammered action grand. So it felt like a real piano and sounded incredible. Yeah. So he had his Casio on his end of the phone, and I had my, I have a Casio controller in front of my Pro Tools in my studio. So if singers are singing a wrong note or we need to change a chord, I just reach up and I plunk out the note on it. And what about this, you know? So I would open up a recording session. Keith and I would get on the phone together and we start talking about ideas and he'd play something. And because I had eight years of classical piano and two years of jazz, I can play. I can't play like Keith, but I can play. And he'd play something really fast. I go... Do, 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 you know, try to plunk it out, and he'd yeah. say, no, there's a G in there, or, you know, there's an F chord in there, a D, D minor, and ninth. And a, he'd give me the corrections where I could put it down in the Pro Tools to use these written-on-the-spot live interaction pieces. That's the only way I can really try to give you a visual of it. And um, we would develop that later once I got the songs written around it. And uh, I never got the chance to have him come in and do those parts that we had written over the phone. I had all the other stuff. Yeah. But uh, he died three months into us working together. Yeah. And and so, and you, I mean, we'll come back to that in just a second, but you mentioned, you know, talking to Carl. He was really tied up with the ELP at the time, so he wasn't able to come in on the, the project, right? Yeah. It, it was interesting because over the years, a couple times, Carl and I had spoken about maybe doing another record together, and he was up for it, but he was he's so busy. He never had the time, because his ELP legacy has actually been going for quite a few years. And before the album, um, I had spoken to him, and he wasn't really interested because he was touring so much and didn't really have the window to do it justice. And, you know, he's a top-level musician, drummer. Lots of ideas, great dynamic guy. And if he can't be in 110%, Carl's not going to do it. And he, he just, he had tour commitments. And Keith and I had actually thought um, we'd like to have Simon Phillips play the, the drums on it at that point. But we hadn't spoken with Simon because we wanted to get these songs written and laid out first, you know, make sure we had the whole album and then we'd see where we can go next. But Carl, uh, even after Keith was gone, I called him and I said, you know, I, I don't think I can continue on with this, but, you know, if you want to do it with me, they would give me a reason. He said, you know, right now, Greg and Keith were both gone. I'm so dedicated to the ELP legacy, which is my legacy. And the only one left, that's my focus. That's all I'm going to do. And I respect him for that. And I think that's exactly what he should do. Yeah. You know? And and so when you were making the album, you know, I mean, obviously you you took your you took a break, you took a grieving time, but then you know you um, you came back at it and you kind of took those uh, ideas that you guys had built together, right? Um, and, yeah. and and put it into what you know what ultimately became uh, the rules of change, right? Yeah, 
You know, it took me about six months. I just wasn't going to do it. I felt there was no honest way for me to put out an album that Keith and I were working on. There, there was just no way. I just felt wrong about it. But then I had this idea after I felt a little better. I mean, it was, it was tough on me. To, you got to realize that not only I lost like, a great friend, my most famous friend, a guy I had a top 10 record with, but also a 27-year-old dream of doing a second three album that I thought would never happen. I, I, all of those were gone, and it uh, emotionally for me it was kind of tough. You know, it, as a musician, you only get a certain amount of things that are real trophies in your life. And a top ten song for me was a real trophy, and working with Keith and Carl was another trophy. And I thought this album was going to be, you know, I call it my Sergeant Pepper's, which of course was the Beatles' greatest effort. Supposedly, you know, changed everything, changed music. Uh, this was going to be my Sergeant Pepper, the best thing I could ever do with all my experiences. And uh, so I, all that was gone. It took me six months to, to feel strong enough to, I thought, you know what? I wonder if Aaron Emerson, Keith's son, he plays piano and keyboards. I wonder if he would finish this with me. That would be a fitting tribute and be an honest effort. Yeah. So I called him and he was kind of excited. He goes, I'd love to do that. I said, well, you know, they, the record company would want us to tour maybe. Oh, I'd, that would be fun, you know. It, I thought, wow, you know, I think, okay, go send me some songs. So I, unfortunately, I sent him a really hard song. <laughs> that was yeah. my mistake. The first song of that, one by one, uh, Aaron got, and the intro is extremely hard. And already he's listening to it going, oh, I can't play like this. This is my dad. It's a, he called me, he goes, I, I can't do this, Robert. It's, it's just not my style. It's not what I do. It's my dad's style. And, you know, I understood um, it was out of his comfort zone. But what that had done for me is, you know, I really visited all the music we had, and we had five songs ready to go. And um, I thought, wow, you know, with the way I felt for the last six months and these five songs so almost complete, I, you know, I, I have some ideas for more songs. You know, I think I'm going to finish this album for myself. I'm just going to do it. I didn't have plans to release it. I just said, this is something that we were going to do. And I'm listening to this stuff. It's so good for me. Yeah. You know, not, not for the general audience. It's so good for me and I love it. And uh, we, we did some great work and great plan. I'm going to finish it. So at that point, um, I decided to finish it on my own. And I, I like to say I'm capable you know, I, I'm not saying I'm as good as Keith on keyboard, but I'm capable of playing. And I play a lot of instruments. I do it every day in my studio. And I thought, I'll just do this exactly the way Keith and I talked about it. I know the sound of three. I was in the rehearsal room, you know, with us uh, 28 years ago now. Yeah. I was half the right. I was the vocalist. I even played some keyboards on it. So I know this sound. I know the style. I know what it should have been as a follow-up album, I'm going to do it. And that's how it came about that I finished it up. Although, even at that point, I got it done. The record company said, we want to hear one. I said, I don't think, I don't know if this is really right to put out. I said, I, I don't even know what I have. I spent hundreds of hours, a lot of time in the dark of my studio, just, you know, writing and recording and trying to make this the best work I could. And they said, well, send it to us. We'll let you know what we think. And I sent them a copy. They got back to me and said, we love it. Let's put it out. I said, I don't know. So I actually, there's a guy, uh, Rolf Rollinger, who runs the 
three Emerson Berry Palmer's Facebook page. I thought, you know what? Rolf has a good take on what three was. Let me send him a couple songs. I sent Rolf a couple songs. He got back to me. He goes, you got to release this. Yeah. And I'm thinking, I'm always pushing it back. No, oh, Rolf, he's, he's prejudiced. Of course he likes it. He, he likes three. And I, so I know this girl in Scotland who used to work with Keith on uh, some of his work where she's in L.A. And she's a great pianist. And she knows everything Keith's ever done. Uh, she would tell me if she thought it was not worthy, she'd be very negative. I'm going to send it to her. So I sent it to her and she got back to me and said, how did you do this without Keith being alive? She said, this is amazing. And I thought, well, wow. And I'm getting some comments here from people that, that should know about this. And I think caring enough about my history and music that they wouldn't tell me I had something good just to put me out there to embarrass myself, you know? Right. So I called the company and said, okay, I guess, uh, I guess you can put it out. And yep. That's where that ended. And the rest started. Yeah. And the rest is history. And so, um, as we um, wind down here, Robert, I want to, uh, I mean, you kind of alluded to kind of thinking tour with Aaron. Do you, do you see yourself, um, kind of wanting to get out there and tour this and get it out to, you know, uh, an audience li- in a live setting right now. Where where are you on that? You know, I had not planned on uh, doing a tour behind this album, and then a manager called me and said, "You have done a job here that nobody else could have done. We need to put you on the road. We need to make. We need to do a world tour, and I want to be the guy to do that." And I thought, "Wow!" I thought. I wait all my life to hear someone say that. And like 10 years ago, that would have been really good. You know, but I'm thinking, world tour right now? Okay, let's see. You know, a lot of response with the studio's busy. I'm playing with Greg Kinn all the time. But you know what? I said, I'd be up for that. And one of the reasons I'd be up for it, because my history in music, with progressive music, started with three. If I do two songs off the three album, then I had this great uh, catalog of songs on tribute albums that a record label named Magna Carta put out. I have a sort of a critically acclaimed version of Roundabout by Yes, uh, Watch of the Sky by Genesis. I have a letter from Steve Howe actually telling Mitch how much he liked the bass line on my version. I thought, wow, the bass line was the whole song in the first version. I'm surprised he'd say that, you know. And then I did a Jethro Tull tribute album, did the song, and I have a letter from Ian Anderson telling me that My Minstrels in the Gallery was his favorite track on there. He thought it was great. So I'll put those tribute songs in there. Then I toured the band Ambrosia. Um, they have a song called Life Beyond L.A. that's kind of hits the progressive market. I would do that. I had a solo album called Dividing Line, and I do a couple songs from that. Then I have 3-2, do two, three songs from that. And it'd be an hour and a half almost of music of mine over the last 30 years that is attached to some pretty big names. Oh, and GTR, the second album, GTR. I would do a couple songs from that. And people know these songs, and it's part of the like, progressive rock history. And I sort of have a, like the greatest hits of the Robert Berry uh, legacy, in whatever it is. You know, yeah. I don't know what to call it. But anyway, that, that's the plan. And next year, they're trying to put that together. Well, that's awesome, and uh, and uh, I mean, I know you'll obviously play a home hometown gig, so <laughs> hope to see you out at that here in the the bay when you, um, you know, when you bring it around. Because uh, yeah, I really was digging the album. 
I would think something like is the Fillmore still there in San Francisco? Uh, something like that type place. We're, we're starting with uh, we hope like 500 seaters. We want to start smaller. Yeah. Well, that's what Carl did. He went back at the LP Legacy. He did. He, I think he did 300 seaters. Yeah. You know, and he's been touring for 10 years with that. And I think that's the way to do it and get the people that appreciate the music and appreciate uh, the history with Keith and Carl and Steve Howe and uh, yeah. you know give them something they've never seen before and. Possibly because this three-two can only happen once. You can only do this last effort with Keith and, and myself yeah. one time where we work together. That this will probably be maybe it'll go a year and a half or so. But it'll be a one-time tour. Yeah, yeah. Get it out there, and I mean, and live vicariously through Keith as well. And I, I think it'll really be great. So. Yeah, how would you like to be the guy that I asked to play keyboards on all this stuff? I know, I know, <laughs> it's, know? In, it's intense. I, nope, <laughs> pass. <laughs> well, well, He's going to have to be some kind of crazy guy to say, oh, yeah, I'll learn all yeah, that. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll fill those shoes, sure. Uh-huh, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sounds easy. <laughs> right. Well, Robert, thank you for taking the time today. I, I, you know, I really enjoyed our chat and uh, and hearing about the the legacy, and you know, and I'm glad you were able to kind of bookend it with this, this 3.2 and um, and uh, uh, and kind of get that out there. And I look forward to, to seeing you again soon. Okay. Well, Steve, I appreciate. it. I'm glad you've heard the album and, and looked at what went on with it and stuff. I can tell that you knew what you were talking about, and I appreciate that. Sometimes uh, people are, are like. You know, how did you wind up with Keith Emerson? You know, they don't know yeah. any of the background, and they don't even know what to ask, and except for on the new album. It's nice to be able to talk about the history a little bit. So oh. I appreciate it. And I hope to see it when we come out touring, and we'll talk again. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Robert. Bye. Bye. That was the uh, interview with Robert Berry here on Concert Pipeline. And Jens, this is the point in the podcast where we get into some exciting stuff. What is it? Ooh, we are going to dive right into music news. That is right. Uh, We each have a couple of, I think, pretty good stories. Um, You're perusing yours right now. and uh, Yeah, I think we've got some good stuff uh, this time around. Yeah, so uh, so let's start with uh, the Smashing Pumpkins, shall we? Yes. Okay, so they're hoping to tour uh, Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness in full. Their big, epic album that, you know, smashed them out of the atmosphere, right? I mean, um, it was huge. So uh, they uh, recently just actually announced a new album with the majority of their classic lineup. So they're, so Billy Corgan is talking to the, you know, some of the original members and they're actually responding, I think at this point now, uh, as well to him. And they're starting to mend ways a little bit. This is kind of in the era of guns and roses, right? Mm -hmm. Where, you know, they, it was, talked about that they would never get back together and here they are four and a half billion dollars later on their most recent tour and they got you know and they're doing just fine right rolling in those large sums of cash billions with a b i I mean that number is unfathomable i mean it it may not be real but 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 they are making money hand over fist on this reunion tour so uh why shouldn't smashing pumpkins do the same right why not do the cash grab 
Yeah, so they're going to celebrate their 25th anniversary of their 1995 uh, double album and uh, magnum opus in 2020. So we're still a little ways away. There's some planning time here, right? All right. Gives us some time to get excited. Yeah, and there's you know some recent comments. It looks like an anniversary tour could well be on the cards. Ooh, look at that. Yeah, so... So we have something to look forward to after... Uh, the final season of Game of Thrones, which should be around. It's <laughs> right about too. that same time, right? I'm sure. So, yeah, so it's like okay, let's get ready for these last eight episodes of Game of Thrones. It's like, like, and then it's over in a minute, right? Right. I know. I think there are only like six episodes or something. I think there are eight. I think there are eight. There are eight. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that's so, good. but it's but you do have to wait forever for that to happen, and yeah, it's uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of waiting time on that one. And, have to go back and re-binge the whole series before it happens, right? So. Well, if that author would just like start writing the last two books, that would be helpful. Get to work. Because he's already 70 or something. There's not much time left. Yeah. So I'm not going to go through the whole Billy Corgan quote, but um, the 28-track Melancholy is widely regarded as one of the most influential albums of the 90s, selling over 10 million copies and featuring the likes of 1979, Bullet with Butterfly Wings, Tonight, Tonight, right, in Zero, like tons of songs that are live in infamy, right? Um, and so, like I said, band announced Shiny and Oh So Bright, Volume 1, Slash LP, No Past, No Future, No Sun. Rolls right off the tongue. Um, their first album to feature Founding Pumpkins members, Billy Corgan, James Aya, and Jimmy Chamberlain since 2000. Wow. Um, and it'll be the 10th official Pumpkin album, uh, studio album uh, produced by Rick Rubin. Uh, so Rick Rubin's producing it. You know, it'll probably be pretty good. Uh, and you're getting the original members back in. Um, and so that might be worth a listen to. I haven't listened to any Smashing Pumpkins stuff in a while. No, I mean, all the stuff I'm familiar with, you know, was from back then yeah. during that time period. And it was, it was fantastic. You know, that was back when grunge was huge. Um, and it was nice to have some Smashing Pumpkins. Yeah, I've seen them a couple of times. I saw them at the Fillmore a hand like uh, over a decade ago, and I saw them two years ago, um, Concord Pavilion, I think it was, with Marilyn Manson uh, under you know Billy Corgan and whoever. Right? It's not the Smashing Pumpkins that's out touring now, or the Smashing mm. Pumpkins that I think is coming together to build to make this album, which is dropping November sixteenth, um, and so. Uh, so yeah, so they're they're working on that. They're planning a reissue of their albums, Machina One and Two, as originally conceived as a box set with both of the other records together. Um, got a lot going on uh, with uh, the Smashing Pumpkins, and maybe a, an album uh, an album tour, which I think would I'm sure I'm sure sell out arenas. So cool. Is that? I'm sorry, I missed the part where is it. Old and new stuff, or a so, collection of. So they're they're talking about their hopes to tour "Melancholy" and the inf, uh, "Infinite Sadness," that album that put them really on the right, market. right. Sold ten million albums. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's what they're talking about. Their hopes. They're talking about that. It's a hope. It's not a. It's not locked in. It's not locked in. Not locked in. So I shouldn't feel like you don't have to buy your ticket. Okay, I can wait. You can wait. I'm good. Carry on. Can I tell my story now? You got a great story. Hit it. So, Smashing Pumpkins. Yes. Fantastic it, band. Okay, I thought you were going to tell me a Smashing Pumpkins Fantastic story. band. I do not have a Smashing Pumpkins story, but my segue here is that, you know, back then we had some other fantastic bands. Uh, the Cranberries 
were one of them. Oh, okay. The Cranberries. And not too long ago, we heard the really sad news that lead singer Dolores passed away. Um, that was awful. Yeah. That yeah. was, was that the beginning of this year? That was January sometime. Yeah, it, we talked about that on the pod, I think, right? Yeah, I think that was, that was uh, beginning of this year. Yeah. So, um, so that was uh, a horrible uh, tragedy. And um, the band has come out and they have revealed that they plan to release their final album before, uh, well, I don't know how to put this, but before, you know, ending yeah. the chapter of that band. I mean, that so was put very eloquently. Hang up their hats. I don't know if they wore hats, but they're going to, so to speak, I hang up their hats. I don't think any of them did. No. I don't think so either. No, I think they were more like short-haired people. Yes. So they're going to... They, they like to wear plaid if you look at their air picture. There we go. They're going to hang up their plaid. <laughs> they're going to hang up their plaid and say, you know what? We have given the world what we can give, and we are now going to move on with our lives. So um, so they are working on a follow-up to their 2017 effort, Something Else. Um, and that's when uh, Dolores had uh, and pa- uh, passed away. Okay. Uh, but the band has continued to work on that very effort, um, and they hope to uh, release this uh, next year. Okay, uh, and it, that's you know that's all they're dropping about it. They're 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 gonna do it. Is what are we here? Yep. So this is definitely gonna happen. Um, so this is something that we can look to look forward to um, sometime next year. And until then, many happy memories of the cranberries and the music that they were able to share with us. Okay. Well, that's cool for cranberry fans. Great. Jens, no podcast of concert pipeline is complete without a a story from uh, about who. Well, that would be either the Foo Fighters or it would be directly about Dave Grohl himself. Yes. This one is about Dave Grohl. Thank Uh, you. There we go. Did I call it or what? (laughs) You did. Uh, and so Dave Grohl is going to play a song with Elmo and Big Bird on the 50th anniversary season of Sesame Street. Okay, this is why we like love Del- uh, Dave Grohl, we right? We love Dave Grohl. We he's, love this guy. Nobody else amazing. does that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's amazing, right? So can you believe it's been 50 years since Sesame Street started? Like, I mean, I know it's been around, you know, like since I, I remember when I was a kid and everything, but you don't put it into that perspective until you think about oh, this, this is still around for like my yeah. kids, even though they're not, they're not, they don't watch Sesame street, but you know, it's a, it's continuing on. These characters are still here. They're still just as vibrant and, mm. and such a part of childhood. Right. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. I mean, uh, Sesame street is just one of those things that, it's timeless. You know, you feel like it's been around forever and you feel like it's going to be around forever, but you don't really realize how long it's been around. Yeah. And, and so the Foo Fighters frontman previously appeared in uh, 2015's The Muppets movie, which uh, saw him take part in a drum battle with Animal. Did you watch The Muppet movie? I, if, I think I did. You must I, have. You've got kids. I know. I just, but they don't watch typical kid stuff. The only thing I let them watch is Mr. Rogers, really. Although, uh, 
in a different story, I let my daughter watch Supersize Me this, ah, this past weekend. Oh, yeah? Uh, and uh, she got traumatized and now doesn't want to... Uh, Eat at all, ever. She's like, why does McDonald's exist? You know? And I'm like, I don't know, dear. <laughs> no. Because people give it money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I'm like, because pe- people like to be lazy and not have to, and, and not have to spend a ton of money. And that's Basil shaking his collar in the background, my dog. So... He's uh he he's hopping on the mic to say hi. So. He's he's shaking it up. Yeah, so big tangent, but yeah, so my kids don't watch normal kid stuff. You know, I don't let them watch a lot of TV and a lot of stuff. They really just watch Mr. Rogers, but um, it once in a while. Uh, and so uh, Sesame Street's new season, which will premiere on HBO, which is an interesting choice of where that is. Why isn't that on PBS anymore? I don't know. Great answer. Uh, and uh, uh, it'll show some of the Muppets traveling across the United States, visiting kids in their own neighborhood. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, there are pictures and everything of uh, Dave Grohl with Elmo and Big Bird. And, uh, and yeah, he's, uh, it looked like he had a, so lot, they're, a lot of fun. So they're all going to go to other kids' houses? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I are they going to be dressed up like Big Bird is going to be walking down the street? I, I don't know. I mean, it's like in front of a blue screen, so I don't know where the picture that I see of them with uh, Dave Grohl. Is Dave Grohl? Do you think Dave Grohl is going to show up as Dave Grohl? Or is he going to dress up as Snuffleupagus or something? I mean, it could be anything. I think Dave Grohl is Snuffleupagus. He, he looks like he's drums. just in, in the it's Dave Grohl awesome. outfit. So, <laughs> um, yeah. So, so that's the story of Dave Grohl and. Uh, and Sesame Street. What do you got, Jens? You got one more for us to wind us up? I do, and it's vastly more exciting than okay. Big Bird. So. Okay. No, that was a great story, and I, I am just... My visuals with Dave Grohl being dressed up as all sorts of different Muppet characters are pretty awesome, and I'm trying to figure out, you know, which one would be the best for him. You let us know. Wait a minute. Isn't there a Muppet person who loves drumming? I just told you, you weren't even listening to the the story. I was listening. It's Animal from the Muppets who drums, and he was in the Muppets movie drumming off against Animal. No, You said that? Yes, we talked about that on the pod. Uh, At least I did. We talked about this? Yes. On this pod or on a previous pod? Uh, On the pod 10 minutes ago. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm so listening to this pod once we're done. Yeah, I bet you are. You're not even listening now. Can we just talk about Motley Crue now? I hope you will. Yes, thank you. Okay. Now, listen up. Are you listening? Yeah. I am. I I better listen to this story. Motley Crue members are sharing an update on news of the band's recent reunion in the recording studio. Yes. Sweet. Motley Crue in the recording studio. Yeah. So they signed that clause that said that they wouldn't tour together, but that doesn't mean they're not going to make music together. Yes. Yeah. They're being sneaky about it. So last month, the bassist um, and the drummer confirmed. Mickey, Nikki Six and. Oh, you want names? Okay, and, so Nikki and Tommy to, yeah, confirmed Tommy, <laughs> the studio appearance alongside producer Bob Rock. Now, a pair of rockers have revealed further plans regarding the studio session. So there, uh, there so there's some exciting news. Uh, uh, tweets the singer Vince Neal. I'll be playing back in recording studio in a few weeks with the boys. 
to record four brand new Motley Crue tracks. Four. New crew. Who would have thought? new. Four of them. <laughs> Count them. Four. Rock on. Basil really did want to Basil say Basil is excited about this. <laughs> Basil never barks, but apparently he's a huge Motley Crue fan. He is. A good dog. Um... Yeah? <laughs> yeah. I think that's it. <laughs> your story, it. is that it? I think okay. that's it. So they're going to record some new songs. So, so they're going to record at least, yeah, four, they're going to record four brand new songs. I, I, I hope they're decent. I hope they're decent. I hope they honor, you know, the legacy that they brought. I'll be honest, I have a hard time go- listening to new music from classic rock artists. That, yeah. You that, know, because I'm right. like... You know, is it going to be as good as the the other stuff? Not likely. Not likely. But I did yeah. listen to some Paul McCartney of his new album this uh, mm-hmm. this week, and and I was digging on it. I was like, you know, this is this is pretty good. Is it good? Yeah. I I could never get into his stuff after the Beatles. God. You know. No, I'd, yeah, he'd be a cool guy to sit down and talk about. Yeah. So. He definitely. I mean, Paul McCartney definitely seems like a pretty cool guy to hang out with and i i watched his i you know this is way late to the game but last night i watched his uh carpool karaoke did you see that uh i haven't seen the whole thing no but i've read articles about it uh, him, and, gr- <laughs> him and the comedian yeah james Corden. yeah no it was the other guy then jamie's james Corden's show late late show that he does carpool karaoke Right, but I thought he was... Oh, sorry. No, he was doing... I'm thinking of a different story. He was yes. pranking people with that other comedian. Oh, uh, Ashton Kutcher, yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't not, know. Not Ashton Kutcher. I may have heard about this. I don't know, but I, you need a name. Okay, these late-night comedians. Who are they all? I can't remember Jimmy them. Fallon. Yes, Jimmy. Yes. Okay. So Jimmy and... Uh, I think I heard about that. And... Uh, Paul McCartney. Paul McCartney, thank you. Just hanging out. You know, pranking people. Yeah, I, I gotta check that clip out. Yeah, because I did hear about that. I think, but yeah. the carpool karaoke is actually pretty cool. And I mean, he does like he pops in. Like they go to his old house that he lived in, and he signs like uh, Abbey Road, like the sign that mm-hmm. says Abbey Road, and it, it like it has some signatures mm-hmm. on it, you know, people, and whatever. But it has, he signed it on camera and everything, yeah, like cool. on this brick wall. Uh-huh. And he and he obviously they do the singing of songs and everything. But then he d- he pops into this little bar in England, and mm-hmm. and he. And like behind a curtain, like uh, he like the curtain pulls, and it's him and his band, and they play this show. That's and people so cool. In and everything. And how much fun would that be, huh? Oh God, just to see Paul McCartney, just like like you're just in a bar having a beer, and then this curtain pulls, and then like Paul McCartney's there, and you're like, you know, sort of thing. Like you're like, what the, you know, what is just happening, right? In the world, right? Can you imagine that? And if, especially if it's something like super retro, like yeah. he's singing, it's a hot oh, day's night, yeah, as if it's the. 50s or whenever that was popular. Oh, yeah. And the, I mean, at the end, he had James Corgan come up and play you know, and sing Hey Jude with, it, with uh-huh. him. And like, I'm, I'm like, yeah. yeah, that would be nuts, right? Like, right, right. Yeah, so cool. Anyway. Wow. Amazing. Yes. You know what else is amazing, Jens? Our lineup for the next couple of episodes for Concert Pipeline. You know, that's pretty amazing. All right. Give us the uh, layout. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you asked because uh, next week on the pos- podcast, we're going to have essence on the program again um we talked to her like a little over uh, we talked to her over a month ago a couple months ago and um i I mean we're funding a 
this this Bernie campaign. She's really pushing for uh, her Bernie and the Believers uh, to go to Washington D.C. They're going to play a tiny desk concert, and they need help with funds. Um, so we'll get into that a little bit and talk about how you can support uh, their endeavor um, and uh, and hear some some songs from from her and chat with her again. Um, but also um, we have coming up. Uh, Lucy Spragan, I'm going to be interviewing her at the bottom of the hill, um, and we'll, we might throw a couple episode, uh, songs from Foreigner and Journey in there because we're going to be covering their show uh, at ATT Park, which is epic and awesome. That's right around the corner. And then uh, in the not-too-distant future, we'll sit down and have a chat with Ben Fong Torres of Rolling to Stone Magazine for episode 200. I am super excited about that, Jens. Nice. Yes, so we got some good stuff coming up. Um, For all of us at Concert Pipeline, that is Jens Schiphol. And that is Steve Jones. We will catch you next week.